Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll catch up with one of Chicago's most talented chefs. Jason Hamill co-owns Lula Cafe and is now the author of a captivating new cookbook. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will head to the ring to review Goodman Theater's new Lucha Libre play. Later in the show, I'll sit down with one of the programmers of the Chicago International Film Festival to talk about curating this year's international features. And later... WDCB's own Leslie Karras talks to saxophonist Maddie Vogler about her new album. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in this morning. A beautiful new cookbook offers readers a glimpse inside one of Chicago's most celebrated restaurants. Lula Cafe has been winning over diners since it first opened its doors in September of 1999. Never content to play it safe, Lula executive chef and co-owner Jason Hamill is known as a pioneer in the local farm-to-table movement. The restaurant's ambitious approach to cooking helped make Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood the culinary destination it is today. The new Lula Cafe cookbook sheds light on that innovative spirit. It features 90 full recipes and 40 quote-unquote building block recipes designed to elevate your cooking in simple ways. But the 272-page book also offers some insight into the improbable journey Hamill and his wife-slash-partner Leah Childs have taken over the past 25-plus years. When Hamill arrived in Chicago in 1996, his plan was to be a writer. In fact, he came to Logan Square after working on his master's at Illinois State under the mentorship of an author widely recognized as one of the most talented writers of the last 50 years, the late David Foster Wallace. So how does a creative writing grad with no formal culinary training end up running one of Chicago's favorite restaurants? Is that table 51? Yeah, it is over there. Yeah, that's table 51 over there on the window. That's, uh, that's where it all started. That is where it started right there. That was one of the topics I was interested in discussing when I recently caught up with Hamill at Lula Cafe. We talked about a variety of topics, including his passions for cooking and writing. So was creative writing your first passion and what you hoped you would end up doing? Maybe when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a rock star. I mean, who didn't want to be a rock star when they were, you know, 14 or 15? But writing songs and journaling turned into like a serious like interest in writing when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, like in early college years. And then I, you know, focused on that. I was like writing fiction and short stories. I went, to, I went to a school that had a great writing program and I focused on that for the undergrad years. And then I went to graduate school for creative writing here in Illinois after undergrad and in between lived in Italy for a little while. For folks that uh, know Lula Cafe and know your name, I think would be surprised by your journey to create this restaurant. I don't know if happenstance is the right word, but like just life events kind of put you on a different trajectory. Yeah, sometimes I say that chef life was an accidental one. It's something that happened to me. I I don't think I was searching it out. And when I look back though, like many things do, it all sort of made sense. Like there was a guiding, you know, some kind of guiding, you know, force 
pushing me through to these various things. But I moved to Chicago um, and was part of a creative community in my 20s. That was super important to me here in Logan Square. Logan Square took me in. This particular cafe that I used to hang out took me in, and that's where I met almost all of the friends that I still have today. And those were artists, writers, you know, filmmakers, musicians, all sorts of like really just makers and doers, like trying to you know make their way in the world. And that's where I felt most comfortable, and you know, made my closest friends. That was my community, and food ended up being the way of me connecting with that community ultimately. So I want to come back to that thread, but I, just a quick detour because you write about it in your, your intro, but when you go to, to study at Illinois State, you end up working with a mentor that I think a lot of people are pretty familiar with. What was it like working with David Foster Wallace? I, I mean, I'm often asked that question. I mean, it's something that's really hard to describe, and it's uh, you know, a really brilliant, brilliant man, and uh, you know, obviously like a great critic of of writing and and style and diction and language i mean he was fascinated by and you know engaged by student writing i'm not sure he loved my writing uh in fact i think he actively disliked it a lot and uh called me out you know i i i went to kind of like a uppity east coast ivy league school for my undergrad and i think he was you know pretty clear like hey you know you gotta check yourself um and uh, it was a big ego check for me um to have him critique the work i was doing uh, and i needed it and i took the you know the sort of advice he gave me seriously and at the same time like i and I described this in the introduction to the cookbook, he also gave me this like sense that what I was doing was valuable and like I should continue. And that was, I mean, he didn't give it a, a lot. I was, you know, wasn't filled with support, but I did get this sense that like, it, you know, he, he believed in me, which he did give to, you know, all of his students. And that did carry me a lot uh, when I was writing this cookbook. So when you came to Chicago in 1996, was the plan to continue writing or were you just open to like what Chicago brought to you? No, I was trying, I was actively writing. I was writing, I wrote a book of short stories I was working on and I started working on a novel. Um, and I, you know, I was coming to this cafe in the morning and writing and working at a restaurant at night as a cook. And I was trying to sort of live in the neighborhood and make the neighborhood populate the stories and, and, and fiction that I was writing. So, you know, Logan Square in the 90s, you know, very different than Logan Square in 2023, full of characters and, you know, uh, unique turns of the neighborhood that I, you know, put into all the stories that I was working on. Um, That's what I was trying to do when I first moved here. Some might call it kismet. Hamill visited the space that would one day become Lula Cafe on the day he moved to Chicago. The place was called Logan Beach, and it's where his now wife worked as a cook. You know, the space that we're in right now, talking, was originally a cafe, the cafe that I mentioned hanging out in, and my wife, Leah Childs, was a cook at this cafe, and I met her here, and, you know, we first became friends, and we actually started this little soup company together. I was cooking at a restaurant, I was interested in food, and she was a cook at a restaurant, and I really loved her soups. She had great, amazing you know, touch and like ability to create flavor in, uh, in soups. And so I was talking to her once and we, at Lounge Axe, which is a, a rock club long, you know, long gone, but never forgotten. 
um, after a show and we just struck up this conversation where we're like, you know, your soups are amazing. Like, you know, maybe we could sell them at cafes and, the, and you know, we just took off this idea in our heads. And, and so we started making soup together and driving it around town and selling it to cafes that didn't have kitchens. You know, this is like pre-Starbucks era. So you can imagine all these like little, you know, shops, 90s coffee shops under every L station, you know, on the north side. We were doing that a lot. And it became kind of popular. And uh, at the same time, we were cooking these soups out of the cafe um, where she worked. It was called Logan Beach Cafe. And uh, eventually that cafe uh, closed and we were able to take it over and transform it into Lula. And that's how we ended up with a restaurant. We didn't search out a restaurant. It kind of searched us out. And then there's a whole story about you tasted your eventual wife's soup before you you met her. Yeah, and the funny story is that I was actually dating someone named Leah. So I was dating a Leah, and then I met a, a different Leah, and then ended up marrying Leah, the second one, uh, with uh, uh, a whole life uh, ahead of us that we didn't even couldn't even imagine. You know, being chefs and parents and you know business owners. So that's where we hear that's you know where we find ourselves today. And that soup, uh, it's like a sweet and sour cabbage. I know it's in the book. Is it still on the menu? Yeah, it's one of those dishes that is, we consider part of the cafe menu, which is like a regular um, thing that we keep keep around uh, just to keep sort of, our dishes change every day here um, for the most part. Um, And then we keep a, you know, a core group of dishes the same in order to keep that like balance between like, fresh new ideas and that comfort of something that you is familiar and recognizable to you. One of the things that like really struck me reading your intro story about uh, how Lula Cafe came to be was just how different the, uh, let alone Logan Square, obviously totally different, but just like opening a restaurant in 1999, so different than what it would be like opening a, a restaurant in, in 2023. But no experience. Also, just the culture of restaurants is really different. I mean, this is pre-chef's table, pre-the menu, pre-the bear, you know, so there was like, it just wasn't the same sort of like center of, um, of culture that it is now. And um, I mean, there certainly were lots of restaurants and people um, went to them, but like the, the restaurants of, you know, of note in the city were all downtown. They're kind of a fine dining or French or, you know, Charlie Trotters, et cetera. Um, Blackbird had just opened up. Um, but Lula is like out in this like neighborhood that, you know, wasn't as well known. And we were, you know, serving a, like a lot of the same ingredients that like the fancier restaurants were. So we just sort of like opened up without anybody paying attention to us. So it was just, and we were able to grow organically. And it's just not something that can happen these days. The cost to entry is much higher. And it's, uh, it's you know, a very different world. I mean, that said, one of the things that I point out a lot um, to people when we're talking about where we are in the restaurant industry these days is that there is a resurgence of that kind of like creative energy in the like pop-ups and the like post-pandemic like economy of uh, small food businesses that's really exciting today um, and that came out of the pandemic um, so that's one good thing that <laughs> a few that came out of you know um, this like worldwide catastrophe but it, there's a marked difference in food culture with restaurants today than there was in 1999. And I don't want to oversell it because I, all of us, like everyone listening, and we all have like these moments in our life, but really the stars did align for the journey you ended up taking, you being in this neighborhood at that time. Oh, yeah, the stars aligned in a major way. <laughs> being able to enter this space without, you know, a huge debt meant a lot of freedom. 
and we were able to try things out and just be ourselves for you know for, for years. We also sort of found um, the farm to table movement or whatever you want to call that concurrent with our opening. So when we opened was when Green City Market, the central market in Chicago here, like really first started. And when some of the farmers in Indiana, Michigan and Wisconsin and Illinois really recognized Chicago as a potential marketplace for, you know, high quality organic uh, fruits and vegetables and meats and other products. Um, that market kind of exploded at the same time that Lula did. So like we were um, so excited about discovering new farmers and like reaching out and like being part of this like new movement toward um, knowing your farmer, knowing where things come from and celebrating the bounty of the Midwest. And that was like at the same time that we were growing up and as a restaurant. So like we kind of grew up together and we both benefited each other. That's one thing I wanted to ask you about it. There was this community here, Logan Square, Logan Beach Cafe, you take it over. You could have kept doing what was happening here, but there seems to be like this thought from you and your partner that you wanted to like push the envelope and do exciting things was that from the beginning you both had similar ideas of of what this was going to be. Both of us got obsessed with cooking and what we could do and being creative through food. And also just the restaurant got busy and we had an amazing staff of people that we felt very close with and so those early years were just like they're like they felt we felt like a band you know what i mean just like at putting out new records and like coming up with songs and like you know people like hang you know like getting new players on the on the stage with us and it 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 was a lot of fun it's also pre-kids so we had a lot of freedom in those years so yeah we were really we were really in sync with about about growth and growth was never about, it's never been about making money because, um, you know, in, in many ways, like being like wildly creative and like trying new dishes every week and, you know, buying the ingredients that we buy, those, none of those things are really good for bottom line profits. Um, it would be better if we just like made everything smaller and, you know, bought junky ingredients and charged high prices. Like, so, I mean... These weren't business decisions. These were all like just passion. And yes, we both shared that passion deeply and we love restaurants. We love to talk about it. We still still do. And we love to talk about, you know, uh, food and, uh, and the qualities uh, that people bring to food businesses and to hospitality. So yes, we were like totally in sync and we cooked together every day. And I still really count on um, Leah's palate and her like sensibility when running this restaurant. There's advantages to going to culinary school and going that path. Is there advantages of not going that and figuring it out the way you did? There are definitely advantages to um, the path that I took. Um, I think the success of Lula and just like the the energy and uh, to use a you know contemporary term like the vibe you get like at Lula <laughs> like you know it's all about being young and not knowing what you're doing and just doing it anyways like that's what this space is about you know and I feel like that that sense of like authenticity comes through in the space it's a lot harder to be authentic when you've like learned everything from the masters and then you know you know interned at this place and then spent all these different years under the tutelage of x y and z it's a lot harder to feel free and you know a lot harder to you know express without restriction so you know for me it was a you know i'm glad i didn't go to culinary school 
the same time. Would I have liked to spend years learning some <laughs> techniques? So yes, I feel like at a loss for that, you know. So one of the things that Lula Cafe becomes known for is these Monday night dinners, and that's really you and your staff are making something that's never been done before. Yeah, we. I mean, it's Tuesday that we're talking right now, so we just did one last night. So three new dishes, never tried, never done before. I mean, we might have used some of the ingredients before, but never in those ways. And it's sort of like a formal creative endeavor. It's kind of like if you're a writer saying, I'm going to write three sentences every day, whether or not they're good, you know, and I'm going to practice, you know, for an hour a day or whatever. It, that's kind of what we do is we make new dishes every week. I mean, certainly at this point, um, we would never make anything we weren't proud of, but it's a, a good exercise for us to like collaborate and think through problems and uh, think about how dishes are put together. And it's a great, great tool for teaching the staff. And then if it like really hits, then it can become... Then it goes, and then it goes on the menu if it really hits. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking with acclaimed chef Jason Hamill about the history of his restaurant, Lula Cafe, and his new cookbook. The Lula Cafe cookbook came out this week. The idea for the publication was born several years ago. You had been approached with an idea, or a chef had suggested your name to the, the publisher. So it was already out in the universe, this idea to, to make a cookbook? Yes, it was before the pandemic. I had submitted a proposal before the pandemic, but even years before that, like Chef Jeremy Fox of Rusty Canyon in Los Angeles had suggested to fight in that the Czech Lula out. And I think uh, Emily Takudas, who's the commissioning editor of Fight In, uh, had been to Lula before and uh, was interested. So, you know, it's kind of a matchmaker moment. If you were going to do a cookbook, what did you want it to be? Well, I think at the time I uh, I saw it as an opportunity to connect like my love of storytelling with uh, with recipes and how I think about the community of uh, of makers and uh, around food here that I that I work with in terms of farmers and artisans that we support and then how that connects to the creativity of the Lula menu. That was my first, you know, my first instinct and like the thought behind the the book at the beginning. It was always also about like the specific day of the dish. Like we, because we change the menu so often, we stamp the day of the, the day, the month, the year of that menu on every menu that we do. And that was always going to be like this sort of like organizing principle behind the book which is that there was there's a day we created this dish and we're capturing that moment so the headers and the recipes were always going to be like little vignettes and stories that connect to those moments when the pandemic happened it became the urge to tell these stories became more urgent you know the urge became urgent Um, i felt a sense of urgency um and the sense that like I could lose the restaurant or I wanted to preserve it or something like that. And so um, the writing was all done during, you know, the time that we sort of came back from being closed. Like the first months of the, the shutdown, you know, was too busy to do anything for me. And I was struggling just to figure out how to piece it together. And then when we started just being a takeout restaurant is when I started writing the book in earnest, testing recipes, going back in time, looking through old notebooks, writing headers, etc. And what was the uh, curation process like? You have a limited amount of space in the book. Certainly have, you know, we had a limited amount of space. No one would want to see all the recipes. <laughs> there are thousands. I think I just, it, it was by instinct and, you know, just sort of trying to pick from different years. You know, it was about what I could best represent, uh, both in terms of the writing, recipe writing and in 
you know, the photography that was done by Carolina Rodriguez, like what we could best capture. It is a gorgeous book. The covers, beautiful, and then the the photography. So did you play a role in, in how things were going to be shot? Um, I played a, a role in how things were going to be shot. Carolina and I, uh, Carolina and I worked together and styled everything together, um, along with Sarah Rinkovich, who is a former chef of mine. We we cooked everything together. Um, the design is. Uh, uh, a designer from uh, Germany named Melanie Muse that uh, Fiden, uh commissioned to do to work specifically with Lula on this project, and uh, I thought um, she did an amazing job capturing the like kind of arty vibe, you know. Hamill understands some at-home cooks like to follow recipes to a T. He's hoping the Lula Cafe cookbook inspires some outside-the-box thinking in the kitchen. There are a lot of recipes in there that are restauranty recipes that have many steps, and there are a lot of recipes that have very few steps. So I think you can kind of pick and choose according to your, you know, where you feel comfortable. That said, I really want people just to be like, oh, you can use this with that. That's a cool combination. Let me go to the grocery store and just grab it and make a salad out of it or make a, you know, roast chicken with those two components or something. I just like kind of want to engage people's ideas about ingredients and how combinations can be put together in a way that will you know, engage them in their own cooking at home. I know a lot of people follow recipes. I mean, I never do. I just sort of get inspired by cookbooks. I love cookbooks and I have a big collection and flip through them for inspiration all the time. Lula Cafe will celebrate its 25th anniversary next year. The approaching milestone made me curious about Hamill's future plans. I know if this hit you with a lot, probably thinking about the future is not something you're eager to, to talk about. But do you think about if there will be an end or is it something you pass on? Well, I have two children. I don't think either of them want to take over this restaurant, so that's okay. (laughs) But in terms of passing it on, um, I think I'm already in the process of sort of engaging the, like, next generation of leaders here to to take control. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm out or anything. I just, you know, am in a great place where I have amazing managers who are running, you know, running the show. I'd like Lula to be in, you know, Chicago institution, kind of like, I don't know, I'd love it to be like a Zuni cafe or, you know, Chez Panisse of Logan Square. That's like my dream. I don't think we're there yet. So I'm going to just keep doing this. Restaurants are for the young because they, you know, you got to stand up all day long and carry heavy things and run around and and be uh, stressed out. Um, So I don't know, you know what I mean? Like I'll I'll do it as long as my uh, body, heart and mind can can manage it. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Jason Hamill. He's the co-owner and executive chef at Lula Cafe and the author of the new Lula Cafe cookbook. It was published by the prestigious Fiden. Jason will have a book signing event Tuesday, October 17th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Museum of Contemporary Art. You can find more information at lulacafe.com. Dot com. Half empty, half full, cup runneth over, owns a plenty. Thanks for spending some of your Sunday morning with me. Wanted to take a moment here and say a big thank you to everyone who called in and pledged their support last week during our pledge drive. Uh, especially to those of you who picked up the phone and called or went online during the arts section. Your support means so much to us here at the station. It means so much to me. Uh, thank you to everyone who, who called and made a donation to WDCB. It means so much. Thank you. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. 
Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Gary Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Good morning, Gary. Lucha Libre has come to Chicago's theater district. Goodman Theater, in partnership with the Chicago Latino Theater Alliance, is presenting Lucha Teatal as part of the 6th Annual Destinos Chicago International Latino Theater Festival. The production features traditional Mexican luchadores and masks and full costumes. And from what I've read, it sounds like the Owen Theater space has been transformed into a mini wrestling arena. Originally developed by Dallas's Prism Movement Theater, Lucha Teatol was co-written and is being co-directed by Christopher Lewin Ramirez and Jeff Colangelo. Jonathan, we'll start with you. Uh, you were telling me earlier that you've actually been to a, a real Lucha Libre event in Mexico. I have been to a Lucha Libre event uh, in Mexico outdoors at the Plaza de Toros in San Miguel de Allende many, many, many years ago. Uh, the weekend, they also have the running of the bulls, and I was down there for that uh, and lived to go to the <laughs> to the Lucha Libra the next night. Uh, so uh, I, I've seen this, this, this form, and it's kicking off this year's Destinos uh, International Latino Theater Festival, as you said, and it's getting it off to what I can only describe as a walloping good start. Uh, Lucha Teotl is an epic story of good and evil, of a young hero's journey of discovery, all told in the form of 90 minutes of Mexican professional wrestling, complete with uh, the masked figures, each of whom in this version represents an Aztec god. If anyone's ever seen Mexican wrestling on TV or attended a match, as I have, then you're going to have a wampum stompum good time at Lucha Teatro, booing the rudos, who are the, the heels, and cheering the technicos, who are the good guys. Carrie, what was your initial? I, you know, I've never been to a live Lucha uh, event, um, but now I feel that I have. Um, this <laughs> is just a delightful show, very audience participatory in the sense that you're asked to write, you can bring in signs to cheer on your favorites. Uh, we're very much encouraged to boo, to hiss, to cheer, uh, to stamp. And yet it's not, as you said, Jonathan, it, it, it's elevated in the sense that this is a story that's rooted in Aztec mythology. There's a beautiful set representing an Aztec sort of pyramid temple, wonderful projections and design elements. And the cast, I think, is just very solid. It's a mix of professional actors, some of whom, like uh, Jean-Claudio, who plays the the, uh, the, <laughs> the harried referee, has long roots in circus performance and physical theater. And some of the professional of the people playing the professional wrestlers actually are professional Luca, uh, lucha, luchadores. And I just, you know, I, I'm running out of adjectives to describe just how fun it is. I think we've had a lot of discourse about what's happening to American theater. How can we get people in? Well, I frankly feel like this is one show that can do it. You know, <laughs> um, younger people, but I would say the older people around me on the night that I attended were also seemingly having a very good time. Um, so it's not just a generational thing. And why would it be? I mean, there's certainly older Mexican families who have been watching, you know, these these kinds of matches either in person or on television for a long time. It, there's pageantry. There's there's humor, and actually, by the end, there actually is a little bit of pathos, a little bit of a resolution. I won't give anything away. 
just enough social commentary, I think, particularly about gender roles, because what we have are the the two main gods who are fighting. Uh, and I I will turn to you for pronunciation, Jonathan, because you spend more time in Mexico than I did. I do, but Coyol, who is the moon goddess, and then Huitzi, who represents the family of the sun gods. Um, they they start off as partners, and then they fall apart. And there's just a lot of these little dramas that are woven through that, yes, are about the competition in the ring, but I think are also, as you said, about this more epic battle, about good and evil. And, you know, people aren't always one thing or another in this world. I found it just absolutely thrilling, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Yeah. Well, you know, professional wrestling is several different things. It's commercialized big business. It is lowbrow, popular entertainment, but it absolutely demands performance skills of the highest order, and that's all apparent in this production, which is built around a full-size sprung wrestling ring, a professional ring, uh, and it features real wrestling matches. Well, well, as real as rigged matches can be, because it's <laughs> professional wrestling. Everyone is there, like you've seen on the TV cameras, the commentators who appear to take it all so seriously, the useless referee, the villains you love to hate, the repetitively stupid heroes, and the audience, as you've already mentioned, is part of the action, too, in this really brilliantly staged production, where the high-flying leaps, the kicks, the head-bangings, somersaults, flips, and more are performed in front of you, sometimes just inches in front of you. And the sheer athleticism of this cast has no equal on Chicago stages. It's a right. large cast, 13 immensely hard-working actors, wrestlers, and they deserve the most credit, especially Joey Ibanez as Huitzi, who, as you mentioned, is the sun god hero, and Paloma Star Vargas as Coyal, the moon goddess anti-heroine, who are the stars. Uh, and the wrestling coordinator is uh, Luis uh, Aski Palomino, who also plays several of the smaller wrestler roles himself. And boy, uh, did they put on a show. Let's pause here for a moment and listen to a, a clip from Lucha Tietal. And this scene illuminates uh, what pro wrestling is like. We'll hear one of the wrestlers give an in-ring speech to his opponent, and in pro wrestling, your mic skills are almost as important as your physical abilities in the ring. Look, 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 Tezka. Let me start off by saying that I personally do respect everything you've done for Lucha Deot Alliance. So I was willing to wait in the back, stay quiet, and give you as much time as you needed to make your retirement speech. But one thing I'm not going to do is let you disrespect me familia and my lineage. You're right, you got the better of my dad a couple times. But unlike you, he always fought with integrity and honor. And now I'm here with the very same mask he passed down to me. The same mask my abuelito passed down to him. This mask, Tesca, is a symbol of integrity and honor. That was a clip from Goodman Theater's new production, Lucha Tietal. It isn't a message show. I mean, you talked about it a little bit. This isn't yeah, a message show. Gosh. Despite, <laughs> yeah, despite, you know, there's some, I, I have to call it mumbo-jumbo about the Aztec calendar cycle and rebirth <laughs> of the gods who are represented by the Lucha Teatal Alliance, 
which is this show's version of the WWE. And, you know, the stock wrestling characters, the heroes and cheats and clowns and braggarts and baddies, you know, they have 2,000-year-old roots in theater history, but none of that makes Lucho Teatro more than a great entertainment and a nod to Mexican popular culture. Right. I would say uh, for yeah. uh, audience members who maybe were familiar with several years ago with the elaborate entrance of Chad Deity by Christopher Diaz, which was at the Victory Gardens Theater and then went to New York, if you're expecting something as laden with uh, sort of metaphoric things about current socio-political or geopolitical alliances, you're not going to find that here. That was definitely the case in uh, in Chad Deity, which was also a romp and stomp in good time as well. Uh, you know, Jonathan, you and I, I think, have talked in the past about how, given how exciting and how invested people are in sports, it's odd that there aren't as many plays on stage that really tap into that. And I think this is, for me, the finest example of a piece of theater that is melding everything that people love about this sport and putting it into a theatrical context. I did get to talk to the creators uh, for an article you know, prior to the opening, and they mentioned that when they did the show at Prism in Dallas, which you, I think you mentioned, Gary, is where it originated, not only were they getting the wrestling fans into the theater, which was certainly what they expected, but a lot of theater people who were there who had never been to one of these matches said, and now I'm going to go out to the neighborhood <laughs> places where these are happening because I had no idea how much fun this could be and how how performative. You know, people in wrestling matches spend so much time talking about what they're going to do before they actually do it. So it's almost like they have their high-flying soliloquies before they go into the high-flying kicks and drops and all the rest of it. I just think it's, I just think it's a brilliant idea. It's a great idea for the Goodman to bring this in. And as you mentioned, Jonathan, a really, really wonderful kind of uh, centerpiece to the Destinos Festival, which has so many other wonderful things happening all over town for, uh, this month. Yeah, you know, it's it's a fact that pro wrestling everywhere, in the U.S., in Mexico, wherever else it is, uh, uh, it, it, well, you know the, the old cliche that art mirrors life. And pro wrestling everywhere mirrors the unfortunate human need to have someone to hate someone to blame, someone to vilify, and too bad we can't keep it all in the wrestling ring. I wanted to add uh, also that this production in Chicago uh, is apparently more fully realized than the original production yes. down in Dallas. And I wanted to uh, note especially the scenic design by Annie Luizos, which features an Aztec pyramid in addition to the wrestling ring. There are wonderfully clever costumes and masks by Nicole Alvarez, and uh, wonderful lighting uh, by Jason Lynch, and the original music by Michael Huey also contributes a great deal to this production and the <laughs> whole environment, circus-like environment right. for professional and, wrestling. And without giving anything away, there are live video feeds that may take you to places that you're not expecting to go in this show, <laughs> and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> Strong recommendation from Carrie and Jonathan. Was that a recommendation from you, too? Oh, that's a recommendation from me, too. Yes, indeed. Lucha Tietal continues at Goodman's Owen Theater through October 29th. I'd like to urge uh, all our listeners, if they find this show kind of interesting or fascinating, please go online and look up Destinos, 
the Chicago International Latino Theater Festival and see what else is playing. Right. Uh, Destino's uh, started uh, a little over a week ago and continues through November 12th, and I believe there's 17 new productions that are being presented over the course of the festival, and you can find uh, a full schedule at clata.org. That's a C-L-A-T-A dot org. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome, Gary. Gary Zydek, this is the Arts Section. The 59th edition of the Chicago International Film Festival is underway. This year's fest, which is spread out in different parts of the city, includes 99 feature films and 58 shorts. New movies from high-profile directors like David Fincher, Todd Haynes, Alexander Payne, and Yorgos Lanthimos will be presented over the next week. But the backbone of the Chicago International Film Festival has always been the international competition. This year, many of the international features were selected by festival programmer Sam Flancher. I recently caught up with him at the Cinema Chicago office to talk about his approach to curating this year's international features. There are a number of ways by which a film uh, comes to us. We have an open call for submissions in January and that anyone who fits our criteria uh, can submit. The criteria is just that the film be new and have, have not been released prior to our last festival. And so we, we have that open call and I think we had, I think there were like 500 or so international features. I think it was like 6,500 films submitted to us total. 5,000 of those were short films and the rest were features. So we review all of those. The whole team looks at them and consider those for the lineup. Uh, another way that we scout films is we attend festivals all over the world. So the team sort of spreads out and covers the globe. Uh, this year I went to the Berlin Film Festival in February and then the Cannes Film Festival and attended those markets as well. So that's not only screening films that are in the festival lineup, but screening films in the market where films are sort of bought and sold in, in Europe. And then uh, we also just have a lot of relationships with filmmakers whose work we've shown in the past. So if a filmmaker who we showed in 2013 has a new film, they'll send it our way oftentimes because we, we have long-standing relationships with uh, filmmakers and like to show people's work sort of over and over again if we can. Yeah. It's probably like an evolving list, and then you have to narrow it as you get closer to the festival. Yeah, it's because the festival is a really broad lineup. We like to think there's some, a little something for everyone. Um, there are a lot of like hits from Cannes and Berlin and sort of these big European festivals, but there's also a lot of stuff that's more discovery, stuff that's showing in North America or the U.S. for the first time. So... So, I mean, it is a lot of what it's an entire summer's worth of just sitting down and watching five or six features a day, going to festivals and watching five films a day. So you, we cover a lot of ground and usually how the program comes together is that we have we kind of fall in love with a few films and then build things around those films. So there are certain films we know we see and instantly you just have it in your head like, oh, we definitely have to show this in Chicago. And then it's just about sort of filling the program around uh, those kinds of films so that we have um, a lot of variety in the program, something for everyone. 
Yeah, I was going to ask about the variety and as far as geography, are you looking to program films from different parts of, of the globe? I think it starts with the quality of the films, but we are definitely really conscious of wanting global representation. I think there is something like 53, I, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but over 50 countries are represented in the program, and that's important to us to, to make sure that the entire globe or as best we can, the entire globe is represented in the lineup. Um, I think it starts with the quality, though. And it, it's not hard to find quality work from all over the world. It's pretty pretty easy. Is a part of it, do you think about what audiences might be attracted to? Yeah, yeah there's definitely... It, that is also a mixture that because we program... Like, we're an audience-forward festival first, right? There are a lot of festivals that are industry-only. Like, you can only be accredited to go to screenings if you're a, sort of a member of the club. And we're not like that. Anyone can buy a ticket to any film at the festival. So we definitely program with our audience in mind, top of mind. Um, but there's also, now and again, you have a film maybe that's a little bit more experimental or more challenging aesthetically or narratively. And we want audiences to be able to trust the programming staff enough that if they take a chance on a film that they haven't seen, um, they'll be rewarded with some good work. So it's it's a mixture of programming to the audience we have and cultivating new audiences with different kinds of work. The Chicago International Film Festival has all these different components to it, but the, the international competition, that's kind of like the OG, like what the festival was built on. Yeah, yeah, that that's the competition that's been like the backbone of the festival since it was founded in 64 or whatever the year was. Um, so, yeah, that, and the, these the international competition has the most maybe household names for people who are fans of international cinema or art, art house cinema. This That's typically where those films end up is in our international competition. The best international feature will be awarded at the end? Yeah, the top prize is called the Gold Hugo, which goes to like the, the best film of the year in, in the jury's eyes. The jury hands out a number of awards, but that is the, the top prize. Yeah. Uh, so I was looking through the, uh, the program. We can't touch on all of them, but there's a couple that, that caught my eye, and one was uh, this film from Romania called Do Not Expect Too Much from the End of the World. And Is this like a black comedy? Yeah, it's a, I would say, really dark comedy. Uh, it, it's uh, by this Romanian filmmaker whose work we've had in the past. His name is Radu Jude, and he, we had a few years ago his film Bad Luck Banging or Loony Porn. That film won the Berlin International Film Festival and then played all over the world. So we're thrilled to be uh, bringing his work back to the festival. Um, it's about this like production assistant working for a big multinational corporation, interviewing um, people who have been injured in workplace accidents um, as she's trying to help cast a workplace safety video. And it becomes very clear that the corporation is at fault in every instance of workplace injury. So it's just this really sort of wild send up of, modern capitalism and corporate culture and and it's very funny and very strange it, it's a film that takes a lot of like wild turns and the the filmmaker is really he's super talented and sharp and he's unafraid to make really bold decisions so it's like part of the film will uh move away from the story and suddenly it'll be a cinema essay about a road in Romania that uh, that has a lot of traffic accidents on it and it's relevant to like maybe the philosophy of the film but not to the exactly to the precise narrative and story so it, it's a film that takes a lot of bold chances it also has like the best sense of our like 
cacophonous digital landscape of any film that I've seen. He does wonderful things compositionally with the the Zoom meeting, the visual of the Zoom meeting. So there are there's a lot to chew on. It's a, it's really a film that's full of ideas, like wild ideas. Sounds like the filmmaker also likes long titles. <laughs> he does. Yeah, I think all of his films actually are like extremely long titled. Another film that that caught my eye, which uh, might be kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, is only the the river flows, and this is a, a Chinese film. Yeah, this is a Chinese film by director Wei Shujun, whose work we've shown in the past. We actually showed his short film in 2018 on the border, and then we had his first feature, Striding into the Wind, in 2020. So we're um, and so he was in the short film competition, then he was in our new directors competition, and now he's in the international features competition feature film competition which is great it's loved to, uh, uh, um, it's great to see a filmmaker grow and in his work like sort of evolve and like evolve up the ladder of the festival um, this film is uh, he, he's a cinephile himself very clearly it, all of his work is like referential to other films and this is a, a noir just um, sort of steeped in uh, like grimy atmosphere. It's shot on 16 millimeter. It's got this wonderful look about it. And it's about this detective who solves a murder case, but there's some lingering thought that there was a deeper darkness at play. And so he, this detective becomes obsessed by a solved case, which is kind of um, an interesting spin on the noir uh, trope. But it, it's like... It, it, it's about the mood and the tone and the atmosphere. It's like dark and grimy. And yeah, it, it, it's this kind of like absurdist, almost nihilistic movie whose aesthetic pleasures are really like just something to behold. It, it's, it, it's really like sophisticated genre work, I think. Yeah. And then I always just like to remind uh, listeners that for some of these films, this really might be the lone opportunity, at least here in Chicago, to see these on the big screen. Yeah, I think my always advice when people ask me what they should see at the festival, it's always to look through the lineup and pick something that is maybe a little bit off the beaten path from a director you maybe haven't heard of before. Pick something that feels like you might not be able to see it in a theater again. Because we have our big special presentations and those are wonderful. We're thrilled to be welcoming a lot of the artists, directors, costume designers to the festival for those movies. But, But it's, I think, the true sort of like unique experience that we can offer is like these are the only times like many of these movies will get theatrical presentation in Chicago so I think if that's something that matters to you then I think those are the movies that you need to seek out when you look at the festival that's Sam Flancher he's a programmer for the Chicago International Film Festival the 59th edition of the fest continues through Sunday October 22nd you can find a complete schedule of everything taking place, including the movies we talked about at chicagofilmfestival.com. You're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. Saxophonist and educator Maddie Vogler explores the intersection of heritage and identity in her new debut recording, While We Have Time. The nine original compositions on the album celebrate Vogler's ancestry and reflect on the challenges of staying connected amid language barriers and competing priorities. DCB jazz host Leslie Karras recently sat down with Vogler to talk about the new album. 
for her first album, jazz saxophonist Maddie Vogler didn't put a photo of herself on the cover. Instead, what you see are the hands of two women from an earlier generation, one hand placed affectionately over the other in a cross-cultural embrace. I worked with Chicago artist Diana Cisneros in designing this artwork. It features the hands of both of my grandmothers. It's really special to me. It's honestly one of my favorite parts of the whole project. Both of my grandmothers are immigrants. My grandma on my mom's side, Olga from Cuba, she arrived when she was 16. And Mora came from Ireland about when she was the same age, and that's on my father's side. During our conversation, it became clear that Vogler's fondness and esteem for her grandmothers reaches beyond the cover art. The title of the album itself, While We Have Time, as well as the music, conveys the importance she places on personal relationships. The title, to me, represents spending time with family and friends and loved ones and making that a priority in life. And the title track, to me, that's my favorite one. Having good relationships with people and building those relationships is so meaningful. I mean, and that's truly what that song is about. I feel the most emotions, I think, when I listen to that one. That's While We Have Time from saxophonist Maddie Vogler's debut recording. She's joined by trumpeter Tito Carrillo, pianist Jake Shapiro, guitarist Matt Gold, bassist Sam Peters, and drummer Neil Hemphill. Growing up in Oswego, Vogler was drawn to music early on, taking classical piano lessons in grade school before switching to the saxophone. Discovering the saxophone was how I discovered jazz. It's hard to think of that instrument without thinking of the history of that instrument. And then I started listening to big band recordings. I think that was how I first got into it. Started taking jazz lessons. And that just, for whatever reason, always resonated more with me. It came more naturally, it was more fun. After high school, Vogler enrolled at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, where she earned her bachelor's and master's degrees in music education. It was there that she met not only her future husband, bassist Sam Peters, but also another important figure in her life, trumpeter Tito Carrillo. Tito, I think to me, is my greatest musical mentor. I started working with him when I was a sophomore in college, and it was really eye-opening for me. I feel like working with him helped me expand my musicianship in ways that I didn't know was possible. He's such a thoughtful musician, and he's so lyrical, and he's such a great person, too, and I think his passion and his just his thoughtfulness and his, his care comes out in his playing. And so just being around him and learning from him really helped me grow. And he, he pushes you. Like, I don't know that I wouldn't have done this record. Or maybe I eventually would have, but I wouldn't have done it this soon. You know, because sometimes you just need someone to push you and to tell you that you can do it. One of her most compelling originals is Ropa Vieja, named for a famous Cuban dish that is one of Vogler's favorites. Honestly, my grandma makes fun of me. The thing I always order is the Ropa Vieja, because <laughs> um, it's, my, it's my favorite dish. I just can't get uh, enough of it. 
So yeah, it's, it's become something really special for us. The title might be lighthearted, but the music begins with the haunting melody played by Vogler. It has a lot of complexities, but it's also at its core pretty simple. But I knew as I was kind of like working on this project that a core part of it is like who I am and who my family is and the people that are important to me. And it became clear that this song was just about my relationship with my grandma, about her family and her culture, and also my own experiences being a non-Spanish speaker in a Spanish-speaking family. from the new release While We Have Time by saxophonist Maddie Vogler. Besides her Cuban relatives, Vogler told me about her Irish relations on her father's side, including her grandmother, Mora. When I was growing up, we would have sleepovers at grandma's house, and it would be time that all the cousins would be together, but we'd also get to spend time with her. She would make us breakfast in the morning, and she would pretend that she was a B&B host. And she became this character, and we were her customers. And we, we thought it was so funny. She's always been an important person in my life, has always supported my music. Anything related to jazz, she'll save me the clippings. And when I come over, she has like sometimes like a stack of things for me to look through that she's cut out of various newspapers. 
While We Have Time expresses Vogler's dedication not only to her family members, but also to her students at Stevenson High School in Lincolnshire. During the day, I teach music production classes, which is mainly songwriting, producing, and mixing. And then after school, I do I work with the jazz program. So that's big bands and combos and stuff like that. So it's, it's a lot of fun. This is my eighth year of teaching, which feels crazy to say. But it, it's something that I feel really passionate about, and it's, it's just like a really great place to go. For Vogler, recording her first album has been both an exhilarating and a demanding project, one that's put her personal and professional priorities in sharper focus. This whole process of releasing this debut album has been very personal, and it's been very centered on me as an individual in some ways. So it's been nice to go to school and in that space, like, it's never about you. So to me, it's really healthy to have that balance. And I, I love teaching, and I think something about this whole process has, I think it's really defined for me that, that teaching is actually, like, the priority, which I think maybe before doing this project, I wouldn't have said. But now that I've kind of gone through this whole thing, it's, it's made me reevaluate, like, how important teaching is to, to who I am and, like, what I do. Recording the album with Tito Carrillo while continuing to teach her own students deepened Vogler's appreciation for the bond she shared with Carrillo and the one she continues to foster at Stevenson High School. It's a really special relationship to have a mentor that you look up to as a person and a musician. It's something that I see for myself now that I'm in a space where I've become a mentor to my students. And some of them are just now like graduating college and it's been cool to see those relationships continue beyond us interacting when they were in school with me. You know people who have been teachers for a long time always talk about that and I know it's, it's just like such a special part of being an educator. Maddie Vogler will celebrate the release of her album, While We Have Time, with the concert Thursday, October 19th at Constellation in Chicago. For the Arts Section, I'm Leslie Karras. Thanks to Leslie for that piece. You can find more information about Maddie's music at her website, maddievoglermusic.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. The falling leaves drift by the window. But you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks again to everyone who called and pledged during our drive last week. Thanks for listening. But I miss you most of all, my darling, when autumn leaves start to fall.